We're coming close to the end of our series in the, par- the parables called the Parables of Jesus. And today we are arriving at the parable called the Great Banquet. And meals were important to Jesus. And I suppose I have this, well, I have this thought, and I'm pretty convinced of it, that the reason meals were so important to Jesus is because he had this great banquet in mind every time he sat down to eat with a friend. He imagined the coming kingdom as it comes in full, and this great banquet, this eternal banquet, that we would all share together with him, our king. And there is a hunger in every one of us for this feast. So let's dig into it. It's Luke 14, verses 15 through 24. The parable of the great banquet. When one of those, uh, let me set the scene too. So Jesus has basically just given two short parables that's connected to this one. And then someone asks the question. So when one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he, meaning Jesus, said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. All right, so what is this banquet? What what is the banquet that Jesus is pointing to? What is he referring to? He's referring to Isaiah 25. And I want to read this to you because it's just so beautifully wonderful. It's a mountain feast. So here's, here's how it goes in Isaiah. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord will wipe every tears from their faces and the reproach of his people will be taken away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he is mighty to save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. 
All right, so this great banquet, it takes place on the top of a mountain. It's this Eden mountain, you might say. And there on the top of this mountain is the Lord with his hosts. A host is an army of angels. And the army is celebrating. Now, why would an army be celebrating? Because victory has come. What are they victorious over? Death. It's been defeated. And we know this because it says in this Isaiah verse that a veil has covered all the earth, all the, the nations, every tribe, every tongue, everything to walk the earth has been covered with this veil, with this curse of death, darkness, a shadow land. And this king of the kingdom sits down and as you enjoy the delicacies of paradise, he dines on something much different. He begins to feast on this veil of death. And he swallows it up so it will be no more. That's so cool. And then as this happens, cheers arise from us and all this army of angels because death has finally been defeated. And then the tender touch of God wipes the tears right off of your eyes. And like a mist that passes by a swift wind, all of your sorrows are not just gone, but undone. And then all of your reproaches, which means your guilt, your shame, everything that you're embarrassed of, everything that you feel shame for, everything that's plaguing you right now as you sit in this chair and you're thinking of all the things that you've done that you know you shouldn't have done, they're gone. The memory can't haunt you anymore. Cast as far as the east is from the west. And then there's great shouts of unending joy, unending praise from every nation, tribe, tongue. The earth has been eagerly waiting for this day. One of the greatest gifts that God has given humanity is our imagination. I'm led to believe that our imaginations are a gift that lead us back to Eden to help us somehow remember the echo of it still today. And I mean, you think about this, everything goes wrong in a meal. This little tiny snack, an apple, everything goes wrong. And here's the kind of God we have. He fixes everything at the end of all things with a meal. It's like we're remembering, like this is what was done. And he's restoring even everything that we did that was wrong. Everything's put in reverse. See, see, part of see, we have this imagination, and the imagination is there to lead us back to Eden in a lot of ways. And what, what a lot of you are trying to do is you're trying to get back to Eden. But now the way to Eden is forward. It's through. It's towards something new to this eternal feast that is to come. We have to be better at imagining this future. So there are studies of our brains it's called uh, functional magnetic imaging, or an FMRI, that shows that when we imagine something, 
all the chemicals in our brain, all the firing in our brain, all the electricity that happens in our brain when we imagine something, it's very close, almost replicated to us actually experiencing that thing. Now, isn't that wild? You wake up from a dream. In your dream, you've done something horrible. It takes you a couple minutes to actually realize that thing didn't happen. You're falling, and you wake up, and you still think you're falling a bit. But the same thing is true that if you imagine something that is to come, and you just think on it over and over and over again, a good thing, the same way that that gives you joy when you live in that moment If you imagine it, it can give you joy and peace in the present right now. So, your imagination is most definitely a gift from God. And our assignment is to bring the future into the present by imagining this future meal that is to come. In fact, I might say that many of your problems that you are experiencing right now, where you lack strength to face them, Imagine the meal and hope will rise up in you. This meal of enchantment on the mountain of paradise, you've got to picture it. And you've got to picture yourself walking through the gates like an orphan child who has been lost, who's finally come to his or her true home after an all too long journey. And you finally breathe the free air of glory. And every breath before it now felt as if you were breathing through a straw. And you sit down at the table. And the table is made of the same wood of the cross. Because that meal cannot happen without the cross. And and then Christ sits down beside you. And in a golden cup he pours the red dark wine of his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins. And the father sits down beside you and he whispers words that were meant only for you. And those those words somehow bind up every wound that you have ever had. Knit back together by his love. And then you look out. And the lame are running through the valley of joy. The deaf hear music that is coming from the throne of God where the river comes out. And the blind, the the dogs are running. It's a beautiful thing. And, And the blind see for everything has been lit by the glory of God. Dreams that you thought were too good to be true now come upon you like a swift sunrise. So when your hope is lost, what do you do? You imagine what is to come. When darkness seems like your only friend, you draw up images of the future. And when your life is dull, you paint a vision of paradise and you'll come alive all over again, reborn again to a living hope. And that's when your heart's going to be emboldened. That's when your mind is going to be clear. And that's when you're going to have the strength to face whatever's before you. Artists and poets, they're needed most in difficult times. Some might say that art is a waste of time during war. What do you need most during war? You need courage. You need a bold heart. How do you get that? 
by seeing something that is to come that might give you hope. So in your difficulties and trials, you need art, you need songs, you need stories that will lift you out of this world and make you dream of something that is to come. Stories of people who've gone before you, who already faced the pain, the pain you're feeling right now, when you're feeling it, you know what you need? You need to see somebody else facing it too. And you need to see them with courage, face what is before them for the goodness of humanity so that humanity might have joy and peace. And as you watch them do it, you imagine yourself do it the same, and then it gives you courage to do that same thing. Jesus speaks of the kingdom as already being here, the future coming to the present. If tomorrow's promises are sure, it does not mean that today doesn't matter. It means quite the opposite. If the resurrection is true, right now matters. And if this is right about your imagination being a gift from God so you can imagine the future and bring it into the present, then this is God screaming at you that today matters right now. That's your strength and difficulties. Other religions either make this paradise. This is as good as it's going to get. So live right now. And, and, and I suppose that there is a little bit of truth to that. Other religions will say this world is like hell. And we need to somehow transcend into a non-existence so we could be free from it. But the Christian holds the hope of the future and brings it into this moment right now. That's how the kingdom of God comes. We know the end of the story so we can bring it into the middle. You see the middle much different when you know the end. And this is called the now, the not yet of the kingdom. And I'm going to make a bold claim and tell you that this is why Christianity does the most good for all of the world. There's a book that's called The Book That Made Your World. And in it, the author convincingly argues that all of the good stuff that we have, especially he's looking at the Western world, he said, all this good stuff that we have, technology, music, art, writing, this advances in medicine, he's linking it all back convincingly, not only to scripture, but I would go beyond and say that, he, that this is being linked to the kingdom of God coming right now because we have a secured future. If we know the end, if we know we're going to be sitting at the banquet, it makes us live much different today. There's a saying that Christians are sometimes too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. If that is the case, then that is a Christian who does not understand Christianity. Christians ought to do the most good because we have the most hope and hope will give you life, energy, joy, peace right now. The ability to face everything because you know what the future is. And you know the meal that is to come. And every single human being longs for this meal whether they know it or not. But we make a mistake. And we, while we long for this meal, we don't have it in full yet. And so let me tell you what you do. You look for it in all the wrong places. Second point. 
There's a lot of false meals that you have imagined in your mind. Now, this meal is a little bit representative of the kingdom of God. And so you have this false image of what the kingdom of God is like, or you're seeking to build your own kingdom. And as you're seeking to build it, you imagine it in your mind, and then you start making steps towards it. And so here's what happens. We start doing this thing where the grass is greener on the other side. And so what, we do, what do we do? We imagine a better life, a better spouse, a better job, a better church, better friends, better whatever, but we're never content, always searching, always passing by the true meal, settling for something far less. And that's exactly what happens in our parable. The host invites his friends to this kingdom meal. They say yes, and then when the day arrives for this meal to begin, he sends out his servant to go and tell them. He says, the meal is ready. The table is being set. Come. And they give a whole bunch of lame excuses. And I don't have time to get into the historical setting, but commentators are saying that this is a betrayal happening. That all of these three people, they're in cahoots. They're trying to make the meal end. They're trying to cancel the meal out. They're trying to end it for some strange purpose. And what Jesus is saying here is that he is the king of heaven. And he's come to share a meal with us, humanity. And we're not showing up. He's saying that I came and my people, I invited them to this messianic banquet. And it wasn't enough for them. So they're trying to shut it down. Searching for the wrong meal. Now, this is exactly what happened with God's people, the Jewish people in the time. When they expected Jesus to come, they expected him to coming as this lion king. And instead, he rode in on a donkey. This is not an extravagant meal at all. But why? Well, if he brought the kingdom in full when he came the first time, we're done for. The kingdom is here. The gates are there, but the gates are barred to us because of our sin. And so he comes first to deal with our sin, to deal with our shame, to deal with our guilt. So why didn't they go in? It was their pride got the best of them. They thought they deserved the eternal meal right then at that moment. There's... Two short parables, like I said, before this one. The first one's of a wedding banquet. All right, so in that culture, there's a wedding banquet. And then there's seats of honor. So how, would it, how it would go is there's this table, and the table would be shaped as a U. And at the bottom of the U would be the host of this banquet. And the seat to the left is the seat of honor, and the seat to the right is like seat of second honor. And what Jesus says is everybody wants that seat of honor. And he says, but don't go and sit in the seat. Sit in the low seat so that when the host comes, if you're going to sit in the seat of honor, he's going to tell you to stand and you're going to walk by everybody. And you like you're paraded. And you sit right there at the seat of honor, lifted up. He says, but if you try to take that seat of honor and you sit there and the host comes in. And you're not the one that belongs there. He's going to stand you up in front of everyone and put you in the lowest seat 
because that's the only seat that's left. Now, this is a lot of wisdom here, and we should all live this way. Even if you know you deserve the spot and you're going to get it, don't take the seat of honor. If it's with your job, you're some leader, something, some reason you, the spot is yours, don't take it. Let your boss give it to you. Let whoever the host is give it to you. The other question we have to ask, though, why do we so want that seat? Why do we so badly want to be honored? Especially in front of those who didn't believe in us. Especially in front of those who shamed us. Why do we want that seat? Well, because we lack contentment. The man who can sit in the low seat and still know everything's okay, how does he do that? Like, how can you do that? The only way is if you know the future. The other way this banquet is spoken of is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And let me tell you what takes place. Christ is the groom. We are called the bride of Christ, which means there is a seat that we sit in at the marriage supper of the Lamb, of Christ, the King of all things. We sit right beside him in the seat of honor as if the bride that's honor. Nothing greater. And if you know that's true, it doesn't matter where you sit. Because you know what's true of you in the future. In fact, sitting in the low seat kind of makes it better. Especially if everybody thinks you belong there. Because then you got a comeback story. And everybody loves a good comeback story. That's what is to come. Those who leave the meal in our original parable, they're looking for a better meal. They don't want to share a meal with someone who rides in on a donkey. They want a king who's clothed in royalty, the colors of purple. But he's clothed in red. He came to fight a battle for sin and death covered in his own blood. He will wear the colors of royalty, but first he wears red. Red comes before purple. Because he's the lamb before he's the lion. He's the servant before he's the king. He wears, he wears a crown of thorns before he wears a crown of gold. And he goes into the ashes. He goes into the ashes to bring out his beautiful bride. We're in the ashes right now. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. But he's come into it in order to bring out his bride. So when you're in difficult times, you're in the ashes. The king is in there with you. You will not remain there. He's bringing you up out of it. Maybe not the timing that you want, but he will because you know what the future is. And when you're in the ashes, if you know that's your future, it changes the way you're in the ashes. Thomas Aquinas, one of the great theologians of the church, marvelous writing. At the end of his life, he threw down his pen and he said, I'm done. Someone else will have to finish my writing. 
I have seen something so marvelous, so glorious, that it has made all of my writing seem dull. I'm done. What did he see? I don't think we know what he saw, but you can imagine he saw what comes after the ashes. He got an image of something, and it moved him to the core, and he was ready to die. And this meal that he maybe imagined, nothing can stop it. Look at the story. This betrayal did not stop the meal. The king sends out his servant to go find more who will come. In this Isaiah picture of the mountaintop, every nation, tribe, and tongue is present, and it is celebrated. But somehow, the way religious people love to do, we change some things that God has said. And we see this a few times. So there's, a, there's this group of people called the Qumran community, where the Dead Sea Scrolls come from. So they had these writings, and, and they're picturing this great, great banquet, and here's how they describe it. The banquet is happening, and here's who they say are not allowed to have a seat at the table. The blind, the deaf, the lame, and the dumb. They're barred from the meal. And then in the book of Enoch, not part of scripture, it says that the Gentiles, which is us if you're not Jewish, will be there. And the angel of death will visit them. Somehow, they have ruined this beautiful picture like a toddler with a paintbrush would ruin a Rembrandt. Jesus knows this is how the religious elite thought. And so he says, let me tell you a story. You, the religious elite, have denied this great banquet. So I'm going to go out and find all the people that you said aren't allowed at the meal and bring them in. The outsiders. And then the host, the king, tells his servants to go out and persuade them, convince them compel them to come to the meal. Now, why would somebody need to be compelled, convinced, persuaded to come into this great eternal banquet? And the answer is because it seems too good to be true. A host of this magnitude in our story, an outsider would know this is too good to be true. What's the trick? Someone's playing with me. This is not like, is this a setup? What's about to happen? Like maybe this is a dinner for schmucks type thing. I don't know, but I'm not going. And so the, 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 the king, the host, tells the servants, you've got to persuade them to come. Christianity sounds too good to be true to outsiders. Now, perhaps there are some, maybe some of you here, maybe some people you know, who have been barred from the table because they went to go sit down. And some so-called Christian took the chair they were going to sit in and pushed it in and said, the seat's taken. You don't sit here. Or, well, let me tell you this, and I've said this so many times to you. Christianity, if it doesn't sound like the greatest news you've ever heard, you're likely misunderstanding it. And what I've found is that oftentimes when people are rejecting Christianity, they aren't rejecting Christianity itself, but something they have mistaken it for. 
So why in the world would anybody reject something so amazing? The answer is their pride. They want the position of high honor, and they want to know they've earned it. It's mine. No one can take it from me. Look at my credentials. Look at what I've done. Look at how I've lived. Grace sounds disgusting to the prideful. They want to know they got the spot on their own. But in Christianity, the seats are gifts that can only be received by grace and grace alone. Those on the inside think they deserve it. And because they think they are worthy, that is why they are unworthy. If they were offered grace, it would disgust them. Those on the outside, they know they aren't worthy for a seat at that table. And that is why they are worthy. In fact, those on the outside are used to accepting grace. They've had to learn to accept gifts from people because they never have enough. If you have your life all together, you might be in more danger at this table than you realize because you aren't good at receiving grace because you've never had to. When you walk into the presence of the living God, better bow to your knees in need of grace. He is not like us. And look around. There are empty chairs. Chairs for more misfit outsiders just like you. So we go and fill the table. Last point. The church is the place where the heavenly meal takes place on earth. So the host tells the servants to go and persuade others to join. Now, I told you there's two parables before this. One of, and, and another one of them, Jesus tells us how to be a good host. And he says, when you go out and invite people in to a banquet, don't invite people who are well off. Invite people who can give you nothing in return. Now, why would he say that? Does that mean that people who are well off don't matter? No, the point is about the host. Be a host to someone and want nothing in return from them. You know what I'm talking about. You do a good thing for somebody, but in the back of your mind, you want them to do something good for you, and you're watching to see if they do. And if they don't, well, you're marking it against them. True hospitality is that which is given not exchanged. True hospitality is that which is given, not exchanged. And that means every single one of you who are a Christian, you must be winsome in your life, persuasive with your words, and serve. Bring outsiders to the meal. Host this meal in your home. Uh, you can offer up a shadow, a glimmer, a piece, or a part of the eternal meal in your house right now. The church 
is not just here on Sundays. The church is you gathered with your church friends in your home and then inviting outsiders in, inviting them into a place where all are welcome, where sins are forgiven, where tears are wiped from our eyes because the king of glory is there. That's where the best ministry is done. This here on Sunday is your fuel to compel you to go and live that way throughout the week. Be a winsome host. But first you have to go out and get the guests. And when you get back, if there's still an empty seat, you go back out again. That's what the, the host was doing. That's what Jesus is saying he's doing. And look, some of you, your, your Christianity is a bit dull right now. And you're a bit bored by this whole Christian thing. Like, where's the life that the Bible is talking about? And, and, and I have a sneaky suspicion that here is your problem. You're waiting. You're just waiting at the table for the meal to begin. And the meal will not begin until the table is full. So you're like, everyone talks about how great Jesus is. I'm sitting here at this meal. Where is he? Where is he? And he's telling you the whole time. The meal is not going to begin until you go out to the outsiders and bring them in. In fact, there's another Bible verse that says, where you serve the least of these, you serve me. That's Jesus talking. And so that means when you get up in the face of someone who's an outsider and you show them like you attach yourself to them, you're serving Christ, which means you're up in Christ's face and you're attached to him and you get to experience him. And then you bring the outsider to the sit down at the table and then Christ is there. He's in two places at once. You know, it's, it's Jesus. So you're like, oh, cool, you're here too. Like, and then you experience him here. And he's like, yeah, meal's almost ready. We just got two more seats. Go. We're called to do this because he does it. He welcomes you, the outsider, into the eternal family, the trinity. An outsider is welcomed in you. He reserves a seat of honor for you. I mean, there's this idea in Christianity where we are attached to Christ. We have union with him. Now, you think about the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit, each working to glorify the other, each in perfect community of love. And then we get swept up into that. Do you hear that? Like, what? That's what you get. That's your future. And it's beginning to happen right now. And so because he has done that for us, we do that for others. He's done it. In fact, he sent his prophets ahead of him. He sent his chosen people. And his chosen people rejected the outsider. So he said, I'm coming myself. And he comes into this world to get us. And he's a gracious host. He wins us over, compels us to come to him because we see how loving he is and how can we say no to a God like this. He was persuasive in his love. I'm going to tell you something. The logic of Christianity, of all other religions, Christianity wins by far. By far. But that is not why you will become a Christian. 
You will become a Christian when you sit at the table and you see how the king of creation has served you. How he's served you by giving his life, how he's bled for you, how he has died for you. He serves you through his death so you might have the meal of life. He is the bread that's broken. On the cross, he tastes the bitter cup of death because the cup was before you. It was in your seat. You sat down and you look at it and you're like, oh, no, that's mine. And instead, he says, scoot over. And he takes the cup and he makes it his own. So you might have the meal forever. You know, you're barred from the meal because in order to get to the meal, you've got to drink the cup. And the, and the meal's right there, and you're like, oh, everything I want is right there, but I've got to drink the cup first. Well, how can you drink the cup and live to get to the meal? You can't, and so he drinks it for you. And then the story does not end there. He rises up from the grave. And right now, in this moment, he is the king upon his throne. But you know what he's doing? He's preparing the table. He's setting the table right now for you, for the day that is to come. So you imagine that meal right now, and you get life. All right, I'm praying. Father, we love you. We love what you've done for us. Jesus, we love that you, you have called us your own, that you have come for us outsiders. You have crossed the hedges and the highways in search of us. And uh, we were running fast, God. But you caught us and you compelled us by your love to come home. So we thank you that you are a pursuing God, a God who is willing to jump hedges and cross highways for us. We praise you and we love you in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. Like us on your favorite podcast provider, follow our social media at Grove Church PSL, And check out our website, thegrovechurch.co.